You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. This is uh, Dr. Carrie Bedian. I am one of your hosts, and I am joined by my two phenomenal, delightful, and beautiful co-hosts, um, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey, Carrie. And then Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. How are you both doing this week? Doing good. Doing great. What have you been up to, Carrie? Oh, my God. So, um... <laughs> So I was uh, perhaps a few minutes late this evening in signing on. And it's because, so I love my husband dearly. He is easily the most important person in my life besides my two small human beings. But for some reason that is partially, but not completely clear to me, I decided that I was going to throw our relationship into divorce mode. And I don't know if you guys have ever, um, you're both cooler than I am, but have you ever played like the Super Mario Brothers games where it's two players simultaneously? Like, I think it's a Wii thing. I haven't played it in a long time, certainly not with anyone because it is divorce mode. But (laughs) you play, like it's two Mario guys going at the same time, like Mario and Luigi, and they're bouncing off of each other. My children play that. I I watch them, but I've never played it. Yeah. So when we have played that in the past, we have affectionately termed that divorce mode because you you end up murdering one or the other of the players because I am not good enough to be at this in sync. And so usually it's me who ends up dying. You fall off something or don't make it to the next place where you're supposed to jump or something. Exactly. Like you go too fast or you fall into a pit or you get eaten by one of those flowery things. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So the... The that is the like early relationship divorce mode. Well, the late relationship marriage divorce mode is I just bought furniture from Ikea. Oh no. And you're making him put it together. It'll probably be a group project because they're, they're, they're big storage base shelving units because our loft area has crap from every human being in the house and the dog in it. And so I need to put it all behind doors because my sanity is slowly unraveling every time I walk through that room. (laughs) And so it's probably going to be a team effort, but I, I mean, I distinctly remember the last time we did this, we were in fellowship together. So that puts it like 10 years ago. And I, and I was pregnant at the time and I thought we were going to murder each other. And I just, (laughs) it's the only place where I can find kind of what I'm looking for. That's timely at all, because everything else is six months or you know, 10 times more expensive. And I really don't know what I have just done. <laughs> oh my goodness. I like Ikea. I've only been there a couple of times because we don't have Ikeas, at least not in Nashville. I don't think we have them in Tennessee yet. I think it's more of a West Coast kind of, or a place other than Tennessee. I went a couple of, a few months ago when I was out in California and it was, I felt like I was in a labyrinth or something. It was like, I could never get out. And, and it was- Everyone is the same. They are all the same. They're all labyrinths. Oh my gosh. And I love, I mean, love to shop. I like, no matter what it is, furniture, I love to shop for everything. But after a while, I'd lost my family members that I was with and I didn't know where they were. It was like, I felt like I was like a kid at the zoo that got lost or something. It was. It's an endurance test. It's so funny. Like there are certain things I love from Ikea. Like I love their cutting boards because you can use them for a while and you throw them away and there's no like, 
love lost between them and everything. But like, yeah. I desperately need cutting boards. There is an Ikea. They're used to, I had to go like a little more than an hour away to get to an Ikea. I pass by an Ikea every time I go to the San Antonio office now. I have needed cutting boards for over a year. And it, <laughs> I'm like the mental like stress of having to like walk in and get the cutting boards like prevents me from doing it. And I desperately need cutting boards and it's insane. It's absolutely insane. I have to say the absolute best purchase I've ever made from Ikea though, on the whole like assembly thing. So, I mean, like I furnished entire offices with Ikea furniture and had the whole shebang. When I opened up the Corpus Christi office, I walked in and in their clearance section, they had a fully assembled shelf. Nice. And I was like, sold. I'm like, <laughs> I don't care what it costs. Honestly, I knew it was discounted. And I was like, the fact that I can literally put it in my car and call it to Corpus Christi and unload it. And it is there. It was the most beautiful thing. They really have cool stuff. I mean, I, like the, for the first like 40 minutes I was there, I was like, this is really cool. And then I was like, how do I get out of here? And then it was like, I just kept, and it was during COVID that one of the surges again of COVID and everybody had masks on and I was just starting to get there. It was the weirdest feeling. I usually love to shop and I actually sort of finally felt like, well, maybe this is what people feel like when they don't like to shop. They feel trapped. And so it was very weird. So I started to look, part of the reason why I was able to get through, because I was in and out within an hour today. Wow, you must have been walking really fast. Well, no, they publish where the shortcuts are. Oh, really? When you look at the signs, you can see, okay, if you are in section 12, you can shortcut to section 18 or whatever. Get out. See, I was a novice. I didn't know that. Now I'll know. But I also had done my research online, so I knew exactly what I was looking for because I wanted to see it. And then if it met expectations, I was just going to go buy it. And so... Yeah. I knew I knew how the shortcuts were going to work for me because if you don't know what you want, then there's no point in taking shortcut. But yeah, so maybe Susan can get the shortcut to her cutting boards. <laughs> it's so simple, but so difficult. <laughs> All right, so I will keep you guys uh, posted as to whether or not I am I am still married in divorce, in married future episodes. Yeah, or or if one of us is in jail for murder, also a distinct <laughs> possibility. If the shelves get built, if they get there, there's all kinds of things you can update us on. Yeah, I even bought all the little storage things. They were like three bucks each. I was really pleased. Wow. Okay, so we're going to do a question episode today. So Susan, you are the keeper of the questions. What do you have? The crypt keeper. I feel like we should put that on your business card. The keeper of the questions. I love getting the questions. All right. So our first one is, I love your podcast and insight on infertility. I suffer from recurrent pregnancy loss and have had two, possibly three miscarriages, one at six weeks and one at nine and a half weeks. I am 38 now. So my RE attributes the losses to age, even though my last one was tested and it had normal chromosomal results. Since then, I've done several tests and everything seems fine. Expanded RPL panel, hysteroscopy, et cetera. But I'm wondering if and when to look into reproductive immunology. It seems somewhat unstudied and requires a ton of meds, but it seems like this is the solution for some people. I'm just not sure when someone should go down that path. Would love your thoughts. Well, I think the tricky part about reproductive immunology is 
there is not a lot of great data on that. And I don't know exactly what you mean by reproductive immunology, but for a while there, probably 20 years ago, there was information about um, intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG. And that was kind of a hot thing 20 years ago. And people kind of did it, but it was really expensive. And it required a lot of different people's blood to be pulled together in order to get the immunoglobulins. And kind of the idea was that Maybe somebody has an immunoglobulin or has something, an immune response to their husband's sperm or for some reason rejects the embryo. And by doing IVIG, the thought was maybe it would run interference. And so I think pretty much that's been dispelled. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine no longer says it's a good thing to do. I mean, that came out 20 years ago. And I think by now, if it really made a big difference, we would know about it. The other kind of area that people look at is natural killer cells. And there are some people who say that there's certain natural killer cells that are bad for you. And but again, there's really not any randomized perspective data on that. And so I think going down that path is probably not one that's going to be very rewarding for you. Um, I think at 38, you've got valuable, a little bit of valuable reproductive time left. And I think probably it would be better served by maybe doing something a little bit more aggressive, like in vitro fertilization, where we can actually genetically test embryos. And of course, I know. You had mentioned that your last miscarriage was not genetically abnormal, but at 38, a lot of embryos are genetically abnormal, and maybe that would not have been one that would have been successful even if you'd done IVF, but it just gives you a better chance overall, I think. One thing I'd like to add is that when your doctor's saying that age is playing a factor, realize that there are more to embryos becoming babies than just chromosomes. And so although we, we talk about chromosomes a lot because it's something we can test and it's something we can like actually make an actionable thing to do, that you know, the development of a baby into a normal baby, you know, sometimes embryos stop developing because, you know, maybe the, it's not forming a heart or forming lungs or a liver or something that's like absolutely essential for survival and realize that, you know, the mechanisms within the little embryo that are the energy production parts of the cells, they just tend not to be working as efficiently. And so, you know, the biggest thing you fight against in recurrent pregnancy loss in older age, in addition to chromosomes, is the battle of time. Because every time you have a miscarriage, it puts you back, you know, at least a few months. And so that's one reason why, you know, being a little more aggressive than less aggressive, a little faster, especially when we're in our upper 30s and early 40s can be very beneficial. I would agree with all of that. I mean, it things just like fashion and bell bottoms and uh, <laughs> jeans and all of those things, things come in and out of vogue. Immunology of pregnancies currently in vogue. Like Abby said, it was in vogue 20 years ago. We didn't learn anything definitive from it, despite people having a very vested interest because as fertility docs, recurrent pregnancy loss is one of the banes of our existence because it just, it's so devastating and you want to be able to tell people what the answer is. And so while it is very appealing to say, oh yeah, take IVIG, all the immunoglobulins, all of this, that, and the other thing, um, it's expensive, generates a lot of money, but doesn't really get you to where, where you want to be. I mean, I had patients who came to me who were told by a prior doc, oh, you'll, you have to have a gestational carry. It'll never work. They have a beautiful one-year-old now. Um, and so I hesitate to really jump on that bandwagon, just like you guys do. So, but good luck. A lot of it is just sticking it out and keep going and going through miscarriage after miscarriage is certainly a very challenging thing to do. 
So we've got another miscarriage question here. Um, I've had three consecutive miscarriages with no living children, and they were all missed miscarriages from spontaneously conceived pregnancies discovered at ultrasounds between seven weeks and nine weeks. We tested chromosomes on the second and third, which were turned as normal XY. Um, we've also had a complete RPL workup with all normal findings, anatomic, endocrine, genetic, autoimmune, and infectious issues all ruled out, and tracking my cycles using OPKs and BBT. I consistently have late ovulation around cycle day 18 and a short luteal phase, six to 10 days, including while taking letrozole and Clomid. Note, none of my three pregnancies were conceived with these meds, but I've taken Clomid for four cycles and letrozole for one cycle in the past and observed continued later-ish ovulation. My first and third pregnancies were conceived with these meds and have also had light period-like bleeding at the time of positive pregnancy tests. My second did not, and this was the only one with cardiac activity. My OBGYN and REI have dismissed a short luteal phase progesterone issue as being a possible cause of the early losses, but I recently got a second opinion with another REI who specializes in RPL who recommended progesterone supplementation in the luteal phase and cited a couple of studies. My questions are, what are your thoughts on short luteal phases, progesterone issues as a cause of unexplained recurrent loss? And why is progesterone supplementation not default with the early pregnancy bleeding and or short luteal phases giving the minimal risks, if any? The jury's still out whether progesterone supplementation will resolve my issues, but based on the conversation with the RPL specialist, I feel discouraged that progesterone was withheld when I specifically asked about the bleeding and short luteal phase after my first miscarriage. Thank you for all your work on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Also, please <laughs> feel free to shorten. Um, <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a lot of information. I think I missed about a third of it, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, they wanted to add for context. So, All right. To kind of bring it down, it sounds like, is short luteal phase really something that's relevant? And what do we think about progesterone supplementation in recurrent pregnancy loss? Like that's kind of the, the gist of the full question with yes. normal chromosomes and everything else going okay. Right. So uh, short luteal phase, when you look at some of the ASRM guidelines, has really pretty much been discounted as a reason in and of itself for having miscarriages. Now, Whenever you have a short luteal phase, is it really and truly a short luteal phase or is it just that everything else has sped up? And so there's more overlap happening between the follicular phase where the follicle develops and the luteal phase where um, you've got a corpus luteum that's producing progesterone. So that's, you know, that's one kind of inherent question to it. I personally tend to give progesterone, not necessarily because I think it's going to do anything, but because it is low risk and there's really not a reason not to. Now, I will say that when, when I have patients who are taking it without monitoring, I do think it gets in their way. And what I mean by that is sometimes I'll have patients who come to me who are told, take your, start taking your progesterone, you know, three to five days after ovulation, which if you're using a OPK, I think five days is a, a pretty safe time to do it because you've definitely ovulated. If you take it too early, you can interfere with ovulation. But then they, what they typically do is they'll take it for two weeks and then they'll check a pregnancy test and then they'll stop and then they'll restart when they ovulate again. And what I have found in the real world, even though theoretically that makes all kinds of sense, in the real world, 
the timing doesn't work out all that well. And eventually they end up throwing off their cycles and sometimes they mishear instructions and they take it all the time and they end up having it function as birth control, which is certainly not the goal. And it, it tends to interfere more. And so I think there is a sweet spot. I think it is like throwing water at the ocean. It's certainly not going to hurt anything. It very well may help. But I can kind of see the point of why your OB and your other REI were like, no, you're not going to take this just as a matter of default because it can mess with things. And usually in those the very, very early phases, I don't know that low progesterone levels are going to make a huge difference. And that's something that's really easy to check too um, with blood work. So... Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm kind of like you. I don't think there's a problem. I usually do give it to patients when they have recurrent pregnancy loss, particularly if they have a short luteal phase. And I use your analogy. It's like dumping water in the ocean. It doesn't hurt to do it. Um, And, you know, I don't know that it necessarily prevents you from ovulating in terms of birth control, but Carrie's right. You don't want it to get off and, you know, be taking it in the early follicular phase when that can cause a problem too. So, I don't know that that's the whole issue. Um, I think it, it, more than anything else, it makes you feel good, makes your doctor feel good if you're replacing it. And so, you know, I don't really see much harm in it. I think I would replace it, but I I agree. I don't think that that's really the whole reason why you're having recurrent pregnancy loss. It may contribute, but I don't know that it's the whole reason. One thing that I would add is that I agree with you guys, usually with recurrent pregnancy loss, I'll add in some progesterone. I don't think it's going to necessarily make or break it. I kind of usually think of a short luteal phase as it is a reflection of probably something that's not working at the beginning. The, the short luteal mm-hmm. phase is because the follicular phase wasn't working right. And so, you know, that's something for us to kind of keep in mind. And then also when you're talking about measuring progesterone, realize that progesterone goes up and down all day long. And so if it's high, that doesn't mean it's normally high. And if it's low, it doesn't necessarily mean it's normally low. It means you ovulated. And so if you're going to supplement, supplement. If not, kind of go at it with gusto one way or the other. Yeah, and that's a good point, Susan. When we first started looking at progesterone levels, one of the first papers that came out didn't just look at one progesterone level, serum progesterone level or progesterone level that you draw in the blood. It actually looked at doing it three or four times in the luteal phase. I think it was three times and averaging out to get a number. And so for a while there, I think some of us tried to do that, but just logistically, that just didn't make sense. So Susan brings up a really good point that, you know, just one progesterone level really probably is not a perfect reflection of what's going on in the whole luteal phase. To be more exact, you probably do need to measure it two or three times and average the number, but that just logistically, that's hard for anybody to do and expensive probably too. Absolutely. Ready for another one? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Good morning. I love your show. Thank you so much for doing it. First of all, my husband has severe low motility, 5%, and I have very irregular cycles being unofficially diagnosed with PCOS, 28 to 75 day cycles, FSH is 6.1, LH is 17.2. So my husband and I had our first failed FET in July, 2021. Since that failed, we only have two embryos left. So I had an ERA and Receptiva DX done. ERA came back receptive. Everything on Receptiva came back normal except for BCL6, which came back positive. The result sheet showed that the threshold for positivity is 1.4 and I got 1.5, indicating possible endometriosis or hydrosalpinges. 
My HSG was clear in November 2020. My clinic had one doctor that recommended a surgical consult for endometriosis excision, but another doctor said that he didn't believe the increase in success of IVF. So I guess my question is, what would be my best route for success? Endometriosis excision, another HSG. I feel so overwhelmed and it feels like I'm just a number at my clinic, but I'm scared to move my embryos to another clinic. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of what right now our whole society is trying to figure out, you know, it's unfortunately in medicine, nothing is ever black or white. And that is exactly a gray area. Nobody really agrees or really knows, A, does endometriosis cause implantation abnormalities? There's a couple of different schools of thought. And then the other question is, if you have a positive receptiva biopsy or, or test that shows that you're positive for BCL6, the makers of that test do say it can be correlated with endometriosis. But then the question really is, well, do you treat endometriosis surgically, which is sort of the way we've all been trained to do as we've gone through our training, or do you treat it medically? And there is a medical treatment that actually, and I think one of the studies that they did has been shown to be effective, and that's treating you with injectable Lupron for a couple of months. And it really depends on the doctor that you talk to in terms of what they believe, because there's just not a lot of great data out there to really know what to do. For my patients, I think if I'm going to do a receptiva biopsy in somebody and they come back positive for BCL6, I would probably lean more toward doing injectable gonadotrophins for a couple of months because it's less invasive, less risky. And, you know, hopefully you'll decrease the endometriosis and improve implantation, or at least that's what the idea is. Yeah, I tend to favor the medication as well with the Lupron, just because with a surgery, anytime you go in there to cut things out, you're taking a scissor, a laser, you know, something sharp in one way or another. And that depends on the skill of the surgeon and finding everything. And there's a lot that can very easily be microscopic that no matter how sharp your surgeon is, they are not going to see. And so I tend to to favor the Lupron as well. Just be fully suppressed for a couple months, then go ahead and do the the transfer cycle. And we usually see quite pretty transfer cycles from that. You know, surgery for endometriosis, there's been lots of debate in our society of whether or not this actually helps things versus not. There's good data to show if you've got pain that it's worth it. But for the people who don't have pain, that really opens, opens up more of a can of worms of do you go in and operate on someone or don't you when you're doing it for, for fertility and not for other quality of life, most specifically pain issues. So Susan, any other thoughts on that? I really haven't jumped on the receptiva bandwagon quite yet. I I love doing ERAs, but generally from what I understand and have read, I would agree. I mean, I've had people who've come to me with the receptiva assays already done from other clinics. And we've kind of talked about these kind of pros and cons. And I'm a big fan of medical management of endometriosis before surgical management of endometriosis anyway. So I concur. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My doctor has recommended Omnitrope to prime for an egg retrieval due to my low AMH level, less than one. Is there any research supporting this? What are your experiences using this drug? Any side effects to be concerned about? So I haven't encountered any side effects. With respect to the research, there was a meta-analysis last August-ish 
that did not show any benefits of Omnitrope. Now, that said, I think all of us have had the situation where we've had somebody who has low ovarian reserve, who didn't make embryos, who had a bad cycle for whatever reason. And I know personally, whenever I have asked around, I've said, okay, I have patient XYZ and we did this, 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 and this, and I'm going to do another cycle on her. What would you do differently? The answer is almost always Omnitrope. However, it's virtually always given with the qualifier of, yeah, but the data is not really there and I don't really know if it works. And when I look at patients that I have worked with, there are some where when we use it, we get good results the next go around, but there is an equal number where there has been no difference. And so I've had a couple of patients who have had such horrible ovarian reserve. They've had to go through multiple times. And frankly, I don't see a difference between their omnitrope cycles and their non-omnitrope cycles, with the exception of they're about $5,000 out in terms of meds after taking omnitrope for the recommended time is, is about four to six weeks or so prior to egg retrieval. So you can pay as much money in omnitrope alone as you will for all the rest of your medications. So I don't tend to use it as a first line. And for those people who don't know what omnitrope is, it's growth hormone. And that's uh, there again, that's been something that's been out there for years. And the pendulum swings back and forth. Some people use it, some people don't. It kind of goes out of favor and then it comes back in. It's kind of like Viagra for frozen embryo transfers. Some people think that Viagra may help the endometrium and that's been out there for years. So I'm not a huge fan of it because like you said, Carrie, it's really expensive and I'm, I've never really seen great results with it. So I'm, I'm just not a fan personally. What about you, Susan? I probably am more of a fan than you two guys are. <laughs> I, I do think it's crazy expensive and I don't usually use it as a first line in people unless I have somebody who's really getting up into kind of their mid forties. I don't. And again, this is anecdotal evidence. So it's not what's necessarily published. In my personal experience, I don't necessarily think it helps me make more embryos. I don't think I've ever had a situation where I've gotten more embryos. I think I've ended up with people who ended up with better quality embryos or more chromosomally normal embryos. Now, could it have just been, I did another cycle and that's what happened? It's possible, but I've had people that I've ended up, you know, a lot of these are low ovarian reserve people. And maybe I did a cycle and I ended up with three embryos biopsied and they were all abnormal or they were all so bad quality. And then I essentially did the same thing for multiple cycles afterwards and added Omnitrope and I ended up with multiple normal embryos. So I don't usually use it as a first line for many people. Like I said, if people are starting to get into their you know, mid forties, then I'm, I'm kind of more ooching towards it and talking about the pros and cons of it. But if I've had a failed cycle and my issue is that quality of embryo, whether it's kind of just morphologic quality or chromosome quality, I've had some pretty impressive results, but I had a few people that I've used it and I'm like, well, this obviously didn't do you any good. So we're not going to use it again. So it's not like something I stick with and I'm like, just head on into it no matter what. As a naysayer, I would say I've had some people that have had cycles that have been like, you know, you do one cycle and then the other cycle is totally different. And like, I'll talk about using antioxidants. So, you know, it's hard to know cycle to cycle variability if it really had anything to do with what I did in terms of antioxidants or what you did with Omnitrove. But I mean, I think it's certainly something to consider, but I just think the cost is really big for something that it's hard to really know if it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's do, let's, 
I think we've got time for at least one more question. Yeah. This next one is one we've covered a couple of times before, but I think it, it obviously is an important one because lots of people ask. It keeps coming back. <laughs> it keeps coming back. Could you please talk about the impact of abnormal morphology for IUI? I think that's our most popular question, to be honest. I think it is too. Well, and the reason I think it's so important is because when we talk about morphology, the only way to deal with morphology is really to do IVF with ICSI, the intracytoplasmic sperm injection, because the embryologist can cherry pick the sperm and pick the sperm that have passed both the talent portion and the beauty competition, meaning they're both swimming and they look pretty. And so that's the only way to really and truly deal with morphology. I mean, we can give the antioxidants and vitamin supplementation and those types of things, but really and truly you, you got to cherry pick them. And so that is an unpopular answer because if everything else is normal and it's just morphology and you have you know, 80 million sperm, the thought is, well, shouldn't the the funny looking ones get weeded out? And shouldn't I still have enough of the cute ones that are going to make it through <laughs> to have a date with the egg and get busy? And the answer to that, I think for many of us is just try the IUI. You're not out very much time and money. And if it works, fabulous. And if it doesn't, go on to IVF. It's not like an embryo created from a funny looking sperm is going to be a funny looking kid. Like it's just, it either makes it or it doesn't. And if there's something in there that makes that sperm abnormal looking, typically that impairs its ability to get up to the egg because when you're doing insemination or you're depending on natural conception with natural conception, the appearance of the sperm head is such that it really navigates the mucus within the cervical canal very, very well because they're specific size channels and it's taper, it's a tapered head and it swims right through them. When you're doing an IUI, you remove that barrier, but it still has to swim a decent distance to get mid fallopian tube in order to get to the egg. And so if it can't do that, it's not ever going to make it to fertilize. And so you're fine. So if you have low morphology and there's sufficient numbers of normal looking sperm to go the distance, then yeah, sure. Try it. It's probably not going to hurt anything. If you are older in age or if there's other fertility factors there, then maybe you don't do that. And maybe you go straight to IVF with ICSI. I'm kind of like you, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Three months of doing IUI is not that big of a deal. And, and, you know, I think you're right. Patients do worry a lot about, you know, if the sperm doesn't look so great, does that mean it has abnormal chromosomes or does it carry abnormal chromosomes? And as far as I know, there's no correlation there. And so the only ways we can get the sperm close to the egg are do IUI and get the sperm closer through an office procedure or do IVF where the embryologist literally put the sperm inside the egg. And so those are kind of the only two options we have to work on that. We used to kind of grade morphology and make a big deal out of it, but there's just, there's not a whole lot we can do about it other than those two treatments. So yeah, I think it's worthwhile to try three IUI cycles. And if it doesn't work, then I think probably IVF would be the next step. Yeah. And I think I've mentioned this before that morphology is one of those things that just like the pendulum, we've talked about so many times this episode in that if anything ever gets knocked off of the semen analysis, eventually it's going to be morphology. So professionally, we can't even even decide if it's really that important. And so... <laughs> You know, I'm like, the cervix does a great job. The zona pellucida, the little shell around the egg does a great job at filtering out the sperm that shouldn't be fertilizing. So I usually say, you know, if that's the only thing that's going on, I'm fine with the sperm. Let's try something. If it works great, if not, we move on. You know, I just like to compliment our listeners overall with these questions. 
All these questions that you've asked us are really tough questions for us to answer because there's different groups in that do reproductive endocrinology that have different opinions about these things. And they're, they're things that are really kind of in a gray zone, I guess is a better way to say it. They're really, there's really not a perfect answer for each one of your questions. And you guys are doing a really good job of asking the really hard questions, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. It's, uh, I've never ceased to be amazed by how freaking smart our patients are. <laughs> I know it's intimidating, isn't it, Carrie? Always. Like some of my patients, it's a board exam. Every time we go in, like, okay, what are we going to talk about today? Let's do it. Yeah, that's what it feels like a board exam, our oral board exams that we took. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us and listening to us today. We are always grateful for you guys to, to be here hanging out with us. Um, be sure to subscribe. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to hear from you. Also, we are now on Instagram and on Facebook. Woo-hoo! And so um, we are joining the technological social media digital age. So um, please you know, come say hello to us, leave us a like, leave us a follow. We would love that. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit a question about your infertility or give us ideas for episode segments. All of your questions are going to be answered on the podcast anonymously in the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love to hear from you. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and it's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.